0: Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Lara Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. The podcast you're about to listen to is part of a six-part virtual webinar series entitled Palestine and Israel, Key Issues for the 118th Congress. The series took place during February and March of 2023 and was convened jointly by the Foundation for Middle East Peace and the Middle East Institute's Palestinian Affairs Programme. In real time, the series was presented for members of Congress and congressional staff only, but all six sessions were so good and the issues and viewpoints they covered so important that we're now releasing the entire series to the public. The other five sessions are also available via the Occupied Thoughts podcast, and you can find the video versions of the entire series on our website at www.fmep.org, along with resources related to each discussion. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the session.
1: Good morning and welcome to this, our fourth session in our six part congressional briefing series Israel Palestine Key Issues for the 118th Congress. I'm Khaled El Gindi. I'm the director of the uh, Palestine and Palestinian Affairs Program at the Middle East Institute. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be co hosting uh, this series with Lara Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace.
0: Thanks Khaled, Uh, I'm Laura Friedman. Today's session is entitled Free Speech Lawfare and the Right to Protest. We're gonna be looking at issues surrounding grassroots activism and protest of Israeli policies, including through calls to boycott, divest, and for sanctions, and the parallel rise in efforts including in Congress and in state legislatures aimed at curtailing criticism of Israel and Zionism and curtailing advocacy for Palestinian rights and their implications for free speech and a healthy policy debate on Israel and Palestine. Uh, To dig into these issues, we have another fantastic panel of experts. I'm going to introduce them very briefly. Uh, I'm going in alphabetical order. We're going to start with Suhad Baba, who is a producer, a news publisher, and the executive director of Just Vision, which is an organization that fills a media gap on Israel-Palestine through independent storytelling and strategic audience audience engagement. Second, we have Yusef Munayer, who is a non-resident fellow at Arab Center DC and a widely published writer on issues relating to Palestinian rights and Israel. He's also widely seen in all kinds of media. And last, we have Dylan Saba. Dylan is a staff attorney at Palestine Legal, where he advises Palestine human rights advocates on a number of issues, including free speech violations, employment discrimination, bullying, and disciplinary action. Um, I'm I'm really, really excited to to hear this discussion. These are all three of our panelists are are really terrific experts. Yusuf, I want to start with you. Um and you know, I've known you for a long time. I want to actually quote you to you. Back in 2021, you were asked by a journalist about the reasons behind growing efforts to quash free speech and protest of Israeli policies. And we're going to talk about a lot of that. You replied, and I'm quoting, it's because supporters of Israeli policy have lost the debate on the merits. And so they seek to shut down the debate as much as possible by making it entirely radioactive. So any mention of Palestinian rights is immediately associated with anti-Semitism and third rail issues, which nobody wants to touch. So I want you to start off by digging into this statement. Um, how has grassroots activism for Palestinian rights evolved over the years? And what are the main threats to this kind of activism? And, and what do you mean when you say that defenders of Israel have lost the debate on its merits?
2: Thanks so much for that, Laura. And thanks for the opportunity to join you here and and talk about all of this. Um, So when I talk about sort of losing the debate on the merits, what what I'm talking about is the debate around um, really support for Israel in the West and particularly in the United States. Um, This is a a debate and discourse that's taking place among very specific audiences. It's important in the United States, of course, because of uh, America's key role in supporting um, the Israeli government and its policies. Uh, and I would argue that uh, the State of israel would would have a really hard time continuing um, its policies towards the Palestinians without American support. Uh, and so it's a vital it's a vital debate. And it's a debate that relies in part on convincing uh, Western audiences and American audiences um, about a certain perception of of Israel, that it is part of this like-minded family of Western democracies. That supports liberal principles and human rights and so on and so forth. I think actually for a long time the sort of pro-Israel uh, voices defenders of Israeli policies have lost the debate on the merits. Um, there are some things that have evolved over time that's changed I think the scale of this uh, and some of the things that they've relied on to ensure that um, they, they are successful in this debate to an extent Are three things that I would identify first is ignorance the fact that people simply don't really know what the treatment of Palestinians look like looks like what Israeli policies are. That's something that started to change a lot over time as people have become more informed about the reality on the ground and the experiences of Palestinians in part because they're hearing more from Palestinians. The second thing I think that that, that um, the pro-Israel side has relied on with Western audiences is the benefit of the doubt, and here I'm talking about sort of the 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 experiences that Israelis have and the Israeli government has uh, that gains them the benefit of the doubt, particularly when dealing with certain forms of resistance like armed struggle, uh, and in any context where a government can argue that their fundamental security is at risk. They often get the benefit of the doubt to use policies that would not be considered legitimate uh, otherwise. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, especially in moments where there is high degree of conflict, high degree of resistance, uh, I think uh, Western audiences have given uh, Israel and pro-Israel uh, arguments the benefit of the doubt that certain policies are necessary. I think that too has really changed over time as it's become clear that. Uh, the debate has shifted, um, and it is um, uh, many voices who are arguing for um, nonviolent economic action to address uh, Israeli behavior uh, that needs to be um, that needs to be the course of action. And so, this is largely coming from civil society actors. Um, this is in response to a call from Palestinian civil society about what global civil society should do, um, and it becomes much harder than to give the pro-Israel side, the benefit of the doubt uh, when uh, they're clearly not facing a security threat from people who are calling for boycotts or divestment or sanctions, but are simply engaged in advocacy for accountability. Um, and so that benefit of the doubt increasingly disappears among Western audiences who are also becoming more informed about the situation on the ground. In this, in this dynamic, um, there is a real loss uh, for the debate and the merits, And so, instead of trying to defend their positions, they try to distract from the conversation altogether, and this is the third pillar, which is distraction. Uh, And and, and this strategy is about changing the conversation altogether, so it's not about how Israel is treating Palestinians, but how critics of Israel are treating Israel unfairly by calling out their uh, their behavior. And so, uh, this involves uh, attacking critics of Israel, uh, in civil society uh, by uh, going on the offensive against individuals and organizations, uh, and also trying to smear them uh, as anti-Semites or um, you know, by other, uh, you know, uh, otherwise connecting them to, to illegal activity. This is a strategy of the Israeli government and one that they are quite transparent about. Um, and so in, in, in recent years, there have been major efforts on the part of the Israeli government um, to use this approach. Um, in going on the def- uh, going on the offensive against dissenters, um, and they uh, advance this offensive in a variety of different ways, uh, including some of the ones that I just mentioned, um, like smear campaigns, uh, like uh, legislative efforts to pass laws to crack down on dissent. I know we'll talk more about that, um, and and also through lawfare, uh, the effort to 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 use the law to to attack or coerce or intimidate those engaged in dissent. Um, so, you know, I always like to quote the the, the words of, um, you know, one pro-Israel advocate that I came across in recent years. And, and he simply said, look, even if we lose the debate about whether or not anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, at least we're not talking about apartheid. We're still talking about anti-Semitism. And that's the strategy now. The strategy is not to talk about Israel's policies towards the Palestinians because There's no way to really defend that kind of treatment. There's no way to defend apartheid in the 21st century among audiences who you're hoping still think of you as a a liberal, like-minded, human rights-loving democracy. So they just want to avoid the conversation altogether and go on the attack against those who are raising questions about it.
1: Thanks, Yusuf. Uh, uh, That really helps set the scene um, for this discussion. Um, so, had I'd, I'd like to turn to you. You, you had an organization, Just Vision, uh, that recently produced a, a really powerful documentary looking at one aspect of the challenges to free speech that we're talking about here, um, and that Yusuf just alluded to, and that is uh, legislation, specific pieces of legislation that target the right to boycott uh, uh, Israel and or Israeli settlements. Um, so we're going to get into the meat of, of those laws a little bit later, but to start us off, tell us why just Vision, um, which historically has focused its work on uh, on sort of, uh, casting a lens on uh, on events on the ground in Israel and Palestine, um, why did you decide to take on this topic in the first place?
3: Thank you so much for having me, Khaled and Laura. Um, and for everyone who's listening in, it's really a pleasure to be diving into this conversation, which is at the heart of so much of what we do at Just Vision, And I know what Dylan and Yusuf have dedicated their lives to as well. Um, as a little bit of background to answer that question, first taking a kind of zoom out, Just Vision is a team of filmmakers, journalists, and human rights advocates. And we have been documenting stories um, on and about Israel Palestine now for about 20 years. Um, we've taken up until this point, a deep look at the grassroots. So we really flipped the lens um believing and understanding that when you look at developments on the ground from the vantage point of communities on the ground um you get a few insights that you don't from typical top-down mainstream coverage of this issue um that's one um what is the context that these communities are living in two what is the impact of the policies on people on real people and then three um, you also get insight into the the values and the goals and the demands of communities who are calling for change. And we believe those are highly informative, especially when we're talking about um, how to create change on the ground in Israel, Palestine in a uh, um, in the current situation of apartheid and entrenched inequities. Um, so up until this point our our work, Um, Our documentaries, um, Budrus, My Neighborhood, Nyland Uprising, our journalistic work. um, We partner with a team called 972, Advancement of Citizen Journalism on a Hebrew language news site, reaching the Israeli public, has largely been um, focused on Israeli and Palestinian communities. But because we're interested in the grassroots, we're also interested in the repression that they invariably face um, by power holders, namely the Israeli governments, increasingly so in recent years by the Palestinian Authority um, and Palestinian leadership as well against dissenting voices. And when we started to see um, methods that the Israeli government has employed to target its own citizenry from stepping up and speaking out um, for Palestinian, for the abuses of, of Palestinians by their own government, um, namely the anti-BDS laws that the Israeli government passed several years back. When we started to see parallel legislation start to take root in places like the U.S. and Europe, we knew that we needed to expand our lens as well. Um, and that's really what brought us to tell the story um, that you're alluding to, um, Khaled, which I know we'll talk about in greater depth. Um, and and really focus on what's happening here in the U.S. for the first time, Um, we also understood that what was happening with these anti-boycott laws um, were quite dangerous, that they could quickly become weaponized um, in a number of different contexts against a number of different communities. Um, And it's really understanding that there's a global trend of rising authoritarianism um, and a targeting of marginalized communities, certainly Palestinian communities, but communities across the globe, across the United States, um, that we said, look, we need to follow this story. Um, And that's what
0: made us really kind of expand the scope of our work. Thanks, Sohad. Um, So, Dylan, I want to come to you. um, And I'm going to quote again here. So I want to quote from a report published some years ago by Palestine Legal. We'll put a link to that report in the chat. It is a great report. People should read the whole thing um, about this whole issue. I want to quote here. So quote, fearful of a shift in domestic political sorry, domestic public opinion, Israel's fiercest defenders in the United States, a network of advocacy organizations, public relations firms, and think tanks have intensified their efforts to stifle criticism of Israeli Israeli government policies. Rather than engage such criticism on its merits, these groups leverage their significant resources and lobbying power to pressure universities, government actors, and other institutions to censor or punish advocacy in support of Palestinian rights. These heavy handed ta- tactics often have their desired effect, driving institutions to enact a variety of punitive measures against human rights activists, such as administrative sanctions, censorship, intrusive investigations, viewpoint based restrictions of advocacy and criminal prosecutions. Such efforts intimidate activists for Palestinian human rights, chill criticism of Israeli government and policy- practices, and impede a fair minded dialogue on the pressing question of Palestinian rights. So what I think is important is Palestine Legal is saying all of these from the point of view, not as activists who are angry and not as pundits commenting, but as a legal organization that is engaging on the substance of each of these things. So in that context, can you talk about what Palestine Legal does? What kind of cases does Palestine Legal deal with? Who are its clients? And and who are the people it is fighting against to defend these clients?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thank you so much, Laura um, and and Khaled for for inviting me here and for hosting this um, and to the other panelists as well. I really um, appreciate, Yusuf, your framing um, of the state of the the movement and the state of repression. Uh, I think you did an excellent job and um, you're exactly right in terms of, you know, the structure of repression, um, repression as a tool, a conscious tool. Um, of the Israeli state to silence criticism and and how that manifests through U.S. institutions, um, and Saad, so I also really appreciate um, you know your centering of uh, of grassroots activists in in the U.S. and and their struggle against um, well organized and well funded um, repressive uh, efforts. That's exactly how. Um, We see uh, our position as Palestine Legal as as intervening at that that point to protect uh, grassroots activists um, and their civil and constitutional rights. Um, So I'm going to take a step back and introduce uh, Palestine Legal. So we're um, an independent legal organization. Um, Our mandate is is to protect the civil and constitutional rights of those in the United States who speak out uh, on behalf of Palestinian freedom um, and, and liberation. Um, and, you know, as Yusuf indicated, um, that's a growing number of people, quite, quite fortunately. Um, more and more people are um, you know, willing to take a stand um, against Israeli apartheid, against ethnic cleansing, against the regular military assaults um, that we're seeing um, against the Palestinians in, in the West Bank um, and, and in Gaza, and, and speaking up and, and really demanding that the U.S. cease supporting um these crimes um in the you know, to the tune of the the billions of dollars of of military aid um, that um, that that Israel receives from from the us. Um so our clients are regular folk living in 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 the states. Um, you know, m- many are are Palestinian, but also many are Jews, Muslims, people of of other backgrounds, people with um you know, deep rooted connections to um, you know to to palestine and and some folks who are just people of conscience who are um, organizing in um in solidarity um but the the common thread is that um it's people who have decided to speak up to organize within their communities um and you know to use grassroots mobilizing tools um, to affect change um largely that has been um you know either a, 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 um within the BDS movement um, or using BDS tactics um, or in solidarity with the BDS movement, um, which, as Yusuf pointed out, has been um, the the predominant um, vehicle for pushing uh, nonviolent change um, in, you know, globally and in the the U.S. diaspora um, as well. Um, So um, where does this take place, right? So where are people doing this kind of organizing a, a lot of what a lot of the work that we're doing takes place on university campuses. Um, so the the student movement in the US um, on Palestine has really grown um, in recent years. Um, you know, SJP is that, you know, the, 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 the campus formation that we see most, most often in the US who's um, who's taking up this work. Um, and since, um, you know, around Uh, Around the time of the start of the the BDS movement in the the early two thousands, SJPs have been organizing um, on college campuses, um, but also beyond college campuses. So folks are are organizing in their workplaces. Um, You know, folks are you know facing repression in their workplaces, even if they're not organizing um, for you know kind of regular. Um, uh you know political expression or even just expression of of Palestinian national um identity. Um but but um you know beyond workplaces also in community organizations, religious institutions, um labor organizations and 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 unions. Um you know right now the, the movement is in is in a place where folks are are organizing across Um, a lot of different spheres. Um, But as folks have already pointed out, and and as I'm sure we'll we'll discuss more, um, that widespread organizing and and the growth of solidarity with the the Palestinian movement has has brought um, all kinds of uh, repressive strategies um, to to break the bonds of solidarity, um, to heighten the cost of pro-Palestine political expression, um, and make it so that folks um, are fearful uh, of speaking out. Now that takes a number of different forms. Um, So sometimes we see involvement from specific organizations, Zionist organizations that are Israel advocacy um, groups um, who take it upon themselves to um, push for controversial and harmful definitions of of anti-Semitism that include um, pro-Palestine advocacy, which I'm sure um, we'll touch on, um, push for um, universities to crack down on Palestine organizing, um, by filing baseless lawsuits um, or just other indirect me- methods of of pressuring um, universities, so that that's a main um, you know group of institutions that we're dealing with. Um, we're also dealing with just university administrations directly, who may fear um, pushback from some of these organizations and and take it upon themselves to repress um, campus organizing. Um, but we also see independent groups that um, that you know try to silence. Palestinian expression in in other ways. So an emergent um, um, issue that we're dealing with in the movement is the rise of um, online blacklists um, and hate sites such as uh, Canary Mission um, and stopantisemitism.org who use um, basically the cover of civil rights and discrimination language um, to target, um, harass um, Palestinian advocates and and try to chill their expression um, by raising the stakes uh, of their advocacy. Um, threatening them basically that if they um, advocate for Palestinian human rights um, these groups will come in and smear their name falsely accuse them um, of terrorism of anti-semitism and try to prevent them from going on to get jobs um, or prevent them from you know maintaining positions um in in their institutions um so I'm going to end it there um I'm sure we'll dig into um, a lot of um, what we've you know what we've only briefly mentioned uh, in depth as as this continues so thank you
1: yeah, thanks. Thanks, Dylan. Actually, I'm going to stick with you and, and, and ask you to uh, uh, to take us a little bit deeper. Um, you talked about the, the battleground really being on college campuses in, in a lot of ways. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, about what's happening on, on college campuses. And, and specifically, I can think of two uh, cases that are that are ongoing one right here in Washington, uh, George uh, Washington University, and the other uh, Berkeley Law School at, at, in, in at UC Berkeley. Um, tell us about the specifics of those cases and how you know emblematic they are of of the broader trend on on campuses.
4: Yeah, thanks for that. Um, I'm happy to talk more. Yeah, in detail about um, what's going on in college campuses because um, you know that is the the majority of of um, of our work as an organization. I spend you know I'm a I'm a staff attorney at Palestine Legal. Um, which means um, that I do a lot of our um, direct client representation and um, in our intake work uh, which means you know I'm um, the the person on on the phone with these students um, helping them navigate these situations um you know through student conduct hearings with their um, with um with ed, administrators um and yeah we are you know as an organization really like the first line of defense um for for these students who often don't um, have much else in the way um, of support um, and are under fire from administrators um, and outside pressure organizations. Um, and I think that the what's happening you know I mean obviously uh, there are a lot of cases that I can't talk about right because um, you know folks have been chilled they are worried about what would happen you know if um, some of the accusations made against them baseless accusations against them um are are um you know are are made public um which is precisely the point right to to silence um you know uh, expression but there are cases you know that that have become public and that we can talk about um and that are that are illustrative of of the kind of trends that we're seeing um so i can speak first i guess um uh, i'll i'll touch on what happened at um at berkeley law because it's pretty illustrative of how um media the uh, um, manipulation and, um, you know, the, the perversion of certain kinds of like civil rights languages and, and discrimination frameworks um, can, um, can be used as a tool of political repression. Um, so over the summer, um, in August, a group of, um, of student activists um, at Berkeley Law um, organized a campaign among other um, anti racist student groups. So, um, you know, groups that um advocate for um the you know the um like um uh, affinity uh, along gender, race, um, um, and, uh, lines and political other political organizations. Um, organized a campaign um where they agreed to adopt a bylaw um that commits these student groups not to host speakers um who support Israeli apartheid. Um, so this. This campaign was largely in line um, with the tactic, um, uh, the boycott tactic of BDS, um, and is explicitly part of that um, that campaign, um, which, as we mentioned before, is is the the predominant and the primary uh, mode of nonviolent um, grassroots organize, uh, organizing in the United States. Um, what, what ensued was actually pretty reasonable um, discussion on on campus um, that didn't break through to them to the media sphere um, but um, a, a former Trump official um, took it upon himself basically to write a super misleading um, article um, about this that that was claiming that um, Berkeley law was was creating Jewish free zones on campus so immediately we see, uh, the kind of perversion that's at, at play here, right? We, we're starting with student groups taking a principled, orga- you know, political organizers on campus taking a principled stand within their organizations um, to oppose Israeli apartheid. And then immediately that's being perverted, um, you know, to say that this is an attack on Jews on campus. Um, you know, ignoring the fact that there are Jewish students who are, you know, part of this organizing, the fact that they are taking a political line, um, as you know, as, as, um, you know, as political um, student organizations. Um, and that kicked off a, you know, a, a basically, a, a media firestorm. Um, and in fact, actually prompted a lawsuit. Um, from uh, an outside organization based in uh, in Israel that I'm sure we'll hear about um, later uh, alleging that 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 by allowing this to happen, um, Berkeley was discriminating against its its Jewish students. Now, of course this is totally ridiculous. In fact, if Berkeley had you know, taken any action against these students, it would be a violation of, of the First Amendment. Um, because as self-organized student groups, you know, they they are not under any affirmative obligation to host people of particular views, just as you know, a reproductive rights student group would be no under no obligation. Um, to host people who disagree with them politically, um to host uh, speakers who, um, you know, oppose uh, a woman's right um, to to an abortion, right. So a lot of what we did in you know in in intervening here is is media work is is to get the students' story out because they're being smeared. Um, and and it's not just you know, one article, right? and and, oh, there's, you know, bad stuff being written about us. Following that article, People came to campus to harass these students. So outside organizations came with billboards that were naming individual students, calling them Jew haters, uh, making all kinds of outrageous um, public allegations against them. Even following students back to their, um, you know, to their homes away from away from Berkeley um, with these kinds of a harassment um, and and smears. Um, so that's an instance in which um, you know we ad, we advised our, our organization advised the students um, you know kind of through the process of of uh, formulating and 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 running their um their campaign but also intervened um, in you know in in the media um, you know to say hey um the the story that's being told about this is super misleading um and in fact what people are calling for um would be a violation of their uh of their rights to free speech. Um what happened at George Washington is um, is a little bit different in that it was um, it was an actual act of discrimination um, against Palestinian students. Um, so um, in in 2021, following um, the assault um, on 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 Gaza in May, um, an organization, an office um, on uh, on campus at GW's campus. Um, that was um, that was a a, a uh, an, an office of student support basically um, announced what they had uh, a service uh, similar to what they've uh, provided in the past um, following instances of um, you know of, of of state violence of racialized violence um, where they said to the Palestinian community basically um, you know that um, we're we are in solidarity with you and want to offer you um, a place for um, a mental health. Um, emotional processing. So what they, what they did was they announced uh, a virtual processing space um, for, um, for Palestinian community members um, to be able um, to process um, the horrors that we were all witnessing. um, And, you know, and, and, you know, for Palestinians personally affected by Um, following a complaint from a pro-Israel organization um, on, on campus um, and in, um, and, um, and kind of general outcry at the statement that this office made, um, George Washington University intervened to prevent the the, the processing space from happening um, entirely. Um, So Palestinian students and community members um, were not able to access this this resource. Um, And in fact, the entire office was put under an audit um, and and eventually basically prevented from continuing to do do their work. we filed a civil rights complaint in D.C. Um, under the D.C. Human Rights Act um, that uh, basically that this is a form of national origin discrimination uh, because the university is treating Palestinians um, unlike, or they, they are they're treating Palestinians differently than they're than they've treated um, other uh, other other national groups, um, and uh, it's based solely on um, the fact that their particular political identity. Um, comes with some political controversy. Um, Also on uh, GW's campus, um, we intervened separately because on the undergraduate campus, um, there was um, some SJP, um, which is a a student formation that I um, mentioned earlier, um, organized a a protest um, and a a flyering campaign um, following um, an IDF uh, soldier, uh, a a prominent member of of Shinbeid, Israeli Secret Service, to come speak at campus. Um, this is a, a normal f- mode of political organizing. Um, you know, totally students were totally within um, their their free speech rights. GW's campus is um, is is in DC, and and the, you know the, the the roads and streets that the students um, were were flying um, were uh, were in public property, and um, you know they were um, they they did everything by the book, um, basically. Um, but because this involves criticism of Israel, um, the university administration uh, came down on them, um, and they charged the the uh, leader, the student president of SJP, um, and um, the SJP as a group with student conduct violations. Um, we went through you know lengthy a lengthy hearing uh, uh, process during during the finals period. Um, that was very harmful for these for these students. Um, it was emotionally taxing. Um, they were, you know, targeted by by, by blacklists, um, and, um, and and ultimately, though, we were able to intervene and get the charges dismissed. So that the students were um, the students were um, ultimately acquitted. Um, but it goes to show um, the level of repression um, that university administrators. Um, are are comfortable le- uh, leveraging against um, against student organizers. So uh, I'll wrap up there. Um, but yep, yeah, thank you.
0: Thanks, Dylan. And and folks have probably seen in the media. There's another case ongoing at GW now with a complaint filed by a pro-Israel group on behalf of some students who are claiming um, effectively discriminatory abuse at the hands of a Palestinian professor. So this is ongoing at GW. Um, Yusuf, I want to come to you, which actually relates relates directly to the case that I just referenced at DW, which is the the issue of anti-Semitism and how it's playing. And if you read the complaint against the professor of anti-Semitism, the introductory paragraph to that extremely lengthy complaint is all about the IRA definition. This is the the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition of anti-Semitism, and and pretty much all the arguments made in that complaint against her are based on that definition of anti-Semitism to argue that unquestionably, she is guilty of anti-Semitic discrimination. So I want you to talk about how claims of anti-Semitism today are coming to play um, a a prominent role in efforts to delegitimize and suppress free speech in support of Palestinian rights, both on campus and in the public debate more broadly. And can you talk about um, the IRA definition um, and the problems with it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that. And I think this, this goes back to the point that I was making in my opening comments about the um, the constant need among the defenders of Israeli policy and and uh, of Israeli officials themselves to securitize the discourse uh, so that they can um, you know claim the 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 need to use heavy-handed tactics to silence dissent uh, and we see this not just with um, claims of anti-semitism uh, but really anytime that you see any form of Palestinian resistance uh, or support for Palestinians that involves nonviolent action. Um, <clears throat> when Palestinians or, or their supporters call for a, a boycott of products that profit from Israeli occupation and human rights violations, it's called economic terrorism. Uh, when um, Palestinians uh, appeal to legal institutions in defense of their rights, it's called legal terrorism by Israeli officials. Uh, When the uh, Palestinian uh, leadership uh, applied for a membership status at the United Nations, it was called diplomatic terrorism, right? Um, When a Palestinian published an article in a newspaper, it was called journalistic terrorism. Uh, Even hunger strikers who were literally in prison cells uh, on their deathbeds uh, were said to be engaged in terrorism in prison because they were refusing food. So there's this constant need to reframe the discourse in a securitized way, to legitimize the kind of responses that the Israeli government is used to using against Palestinians. There was an Israeli general several years ago who put it very plainly, uh, we in the Israeli military don't do Gandhi very well, because they're much more used to dealing with the kind of um, threats that militaries are equipped to deal with, that authoritarian regimes are equipped to deal with. Um, But when it comes to nonviolent dissent, Um, they would rather securitize the discourse uh, in in an effort to to respond to it. And this is where the anti-Semitism piece comes in, uh, because we are seeing more and more now uh, an effort to not just um, uh, reframe Palestinian activism in all forms uh, as uh, terrorism, but also uh, to call it anti-Semitism. And this is done in uh, very uh, specific, and deliberate ways through the application of definitions that would uh, cast a wide net across uh, various forms of Palestinian activism and speech uh, to define it as anti-Semitism. And this feeds into the need to securitize the discourse because what we see in these campaigns around the push for the IHRA definition and others is a call on third parties to take action Because the failure to do so actually leads to a threat uh, to the physical safety of Jews and the Jewish population. And we're hearing this more and more these days. Uh, The Israeli ambassador to the United Nations recently wrote a lengthy uh, letter to the New York Times, where he claimed that their uh, coverage of Israel, which he thought was anti-Israel, was actually endangering Jews. Uh, and, and so it is this, it is, um, it is, it is these kind of stakes um, that I think are manufactured, uh, not to say that anti-Semitism is manufactured, um, but, but the idea that Palestinian dissent towards Israeli policies creates some sort of uh, physical threat to Jews, this is, this is a construct that is put forward to legitimize the silencing of those dissenters. Um, And IHRA definition is a key instrument that is being weaponized to do this very thing. And it does this by, um, you know, using specific examples uh, that would catch all kinds of Palestinian speech uh, and misconstrue it as anti-Semitism. And so if a Palestinian says, you know, um, Israelis and Palestinians should all have equal rights, well, according to the IHRA definition, uh, that could be twisted into a call for denying Jewish self-determination and therefore be, be uh, called anti-Semitism. If you call for a right of Palestinians to return to their homes uh, or to be free in Palestine, or even if you use a map of your homeland, uh, this could uh, be construed into um, anti-Semitism under this IHRA uh, definition. Um, and so I think, you know, perhaps most disturbingly, in recent years, here in the United States, especially but not only in the United States, we have seen a real rise in anti-Semitism, primarily driven by by right-wing forces um, which uh, have become um, more pronounced um, after uh, Donald Trump uh, you know came to came to the fore in American politics remain with us today. We've seen some of the most dangerous anti-semitic violent incidents. Um, in uh, in recent years, take place, but a lot of this advocacy around the IHRA definition deliberately conflates Palestine advocacy with those kinds uh, of uh, anti-Semitic attacks, which I think is not only um, you know farcical, um, but also really dangerous because it silences those calling for um, human rights um, and and really gives a pass to the kind of forces that are most endangering. Um, Jewish Americans and others here in the United States.
1: Thanks, Yusuf. Um, so Hannah, I'd like to ask you um, to tell us a little bit more about uh, the focus of, of your film, which is kind of goes beyond the realm of, of just dealing with policies uh, into the, the world of legislation. Uh, we've seen how uh, the definition of anti-Semitism has, has been weaponized. Um, and and is a, a posing a, a very clear threat in terms of suppressing free speech on campuses and and, and elsewhere. Um, but uh, but there's also another piece of this, and that is the, the the many laws that have been passed in the U.S. that quite explicitly um, uh, seek to limit uh, Americans' right to to do things like boycott, which traditionally has been viewed as a uh, as a form of speech. Um, so tell us about. Uh, the kinds of legislative actions. How big is the problem in terms of, you know, first of all, what kinds of laws are being passed? um and what are these laws seeking to do um and and where and where um and and who is driving uh, these laws that are that are passing across the u s?,
3: thanks so much for um the questions and also just Yusuf and Dylan. I think you both really set the groundwork for where these anti-boycott laws come from um, and what drives them. And the first thing that I just want to say is that what Yusuf was just speaking to around IRA and the weaponization of anti-Semitism and the anti-boycott legislation are two sides of the same coin. Um, They don't exist without the other, um, and one paves the way for the other. Um, And so just to take a step back, the anti-boycott laws Um, We began to hear murmurs of them in the United States circa 2014. They began to take root in 2015 um, and and swept across the country. Today, you have 34 states in the US that have some variation of the law on the books. Um, These laws prohibit public contractors, so individuals and companies that receive state funds. Um, These could be speakers at universities, they could be uh, publishers who receive advertising dollars from hospitals and universities that are state funded. They can be teachers, um, they can be engineers, you name it, um, who are being required to sign pledges that they do not boycott the state of Israel. If they refuse to sign those pledges, we've seen people lose their jobs, stop getting paid and sanctioned by the state and other means and methods. In other cases um, where these laws exist, states are requiring blacklists to be made. This is the case of New York where Governor Cuomo um, was not able to get this signed into law at, this, at the level of the state legislature. So instead signed an executive order um, that requires block lists of all companies um, to be um, made that are boycotting the state of Israel. Um, the application of these laws are quite pervasive um, and have deep um, ramifications. Um, we have already seen companies like Ben & Jerry's, an ice cream company, um, that decided to um, align its business uh, values um, to international law by stopping the sale of its products in um, Israeli settlements, which are deemed illegal under international law. Um, and using these laws, we've, also, we've seen states um divest from the parent company of, of Ben and Jerry's Unilever. Um, so that's what it has looked like. Now, what has happened in response has been incredibly um, meaningful and I think hopeful. Um, and Dylan and Yusuf have both talked about the incredible grassroots movement that so many of these efforts are actually designed to crush. Um, but what we've actually seen is a wave of individuals and communities across the United States that have risen to challenge these laws. Um, namely, we've had um, uh, several plaintiffs um, from Kansas, Arizona, Arkansas, Texas, Georgia, um, step up to challenge the constitutionality of these laws. Um, and they've um, been, this has been playing out in the courts. Um, a little bit of background. We'll come back to those stories, which our film boycott documents a little bit later down in the conversation. But just to give you all a little bit of a sense, you know, for for us as journalists and filmmakers, we're always asking the question, whose interests are driving these kinds of efforts? Um, And because of that, I think it's really important that we understand the trifecta of interests that have censored around these anti-boycott laws that map very similarly onto other interest groups that are driving other regressive laws in this country. So the first group, um, unsurprising to many of you is likely the traditional Israel lobby, specifically in this case, the Israel Allies Foundation um, led by Joe Saba, a lawyer, um, drafted these laws with the backing of other organizations like APAC, like the um, American Israeli Council, and others in the traditional Israel lobby. Um, you also have um, the, a fundamentalist Christian evangelical base that has allied itself with the traditional Israel lobby, um, namely through the form of a very prominent Christian evangelical organization called CUFI, Christians United for Israel, led by Pastor John Hagee. Um, They believe in a um, uh, that modern day Israel is biblical Israel and that the return of the Jews is required for the second coming to occur, Um, and that drives a lot of their efforts around um, the protection of the state of Israel right or wrong, including supports of these anti boycott bills. Um, And then the third group that's behind this um, and is really the engine um, of the laws quick spread across the country is ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. Um, That may ring a bell for some of you um, because ALEC shows up in a lot of places. They are also the team behind the stand your ground laws, voting ID laws, um, uh, crushing efforts to protect water rights and to protest pipelines. Um, You name it, if it's a regressive law that is aligning corporate interests with the right-wing agenda, ALEC is is there. Um, And ALEC um, really built out that model legislation um, for the anti-boycott bills to get picked up and spread across the United States. Um, And there's... A really important tie back to Israel Palestine that I think is really relevant for this group to understand. Um, as we were looking into these laws and looking into what has driven them at Just Vision, um, we came to really unpack the role of the Ministry of Strategic Affairs in Israel. Um, the Ministry of Strategic Affairs um, had been and has been a longstanding ministry in, in Israel. Um, Circa 2012, when you began to see um, efforts like boycott divestment sanctions pick up steam um, across Europe and globally, and specifically following the Europeans' um, decision to label settlement products um, from Israel as such, um, the Ministry of Strategic Affairs um, goes dark. They ramp up their budget and they decide to fight um, boycott, divestment and sanctions globally and any efforts to delegitimize the state of Israel. Um, What we found was that they were they were behind um, funding uh, several US based groups, several of which I just named um, within the the kind of Kufi Israel Allies Foundation arena. Um, to, to support these anti-boycott bills. Um, and they did that through setting up a shell organization, a nonprofit organization called Concert to channel those funds um, because so many um, traditional lobbying groups here in the U.S. understood that it wasn't a good look to take money directly from the Israeli government. Um, so that's um, those are some of the players behind it. Um, and one of the things that we've seen is that... Um, in, in places where these laws have passed, um, it doesn't actually matter if they're red or blue states. This is kind of a common misconception of those 34 states. You have New York, as I mentioned earlier, California. Um, and this really speaks to you know, where you all step in. Um, these laws passed with wide bipartisan support. Um, Republicans and Democrats alike rubber stamp this. Um, And one of the things that I think is really important when we speak to those um, legislators, um, many of them, because of the politics on Israel, that where there's such little scrutiny actually being brought to um, our policies as it relates to Israel, went ahead and passed it through without thinking about the implications, without thinking about the interests, without understanding um, that this was a huge infringement on First Amendment rights, on our ability to dissent, on political voice, which are fundamental pillars to democracy. Um, And we're now starting to see what that looks like at scale with template bills that are um, targeting a number of issue areas, from environmental sustainability, to gun safety, um, to abortion access to racial justice, to transgender people's rights come into play, um, which we'll talk a little bit more about um, later in this conversation. But I wanted to stop there um, just to say that, you know, there's more to unpack in this story around this anti-boycott bill and what it means for all of us.
0: Thanks, Sahad. And for, for folks who are listening, I would recommend definitely watching the movie Boycott. We're going to put a link in the chat. That movie is now streaming worldwide. It's on Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, and Vimeo on demand. Um, I think a lot of what Soha just said is, is actually shown there. It's it's quite remarkable what, what's documented there and what people say openly on camera. Um, before we move on from this topic, though, I want you to talk a little bit about the court cases, which were very much in the news um, last week with the move by the Supreme Court. So can you talk about the legal challenges to these cases in general? And can you talk about what the Supreme Court did last week and what it does and doesn't actually mean?
3: Great, so I mentioned earlier that there's been a number of plaintiffs who've emerged to challenge these bills. Um, The first uh, plaintiff that emerged, her name is Esther Koontz. She's a math teacher in Kansas. Um, She is, identifies as Mennonites. Um, and has been a longtime human rights advocate. So when she was hired to run math teacher trainings in the state of Kansas, and she saw this pledge come her way that required her to sign away her rights to boycott the state of Israel if she wished, she said, wait a second, that is, that's, my, that's my first amendment right to free speech, right? Um, and then she called the ACLU and the ACLU ended up taking up her case almost immediately um, and since then, we've seen a wave of plaintiffs emerge, um, Mick Jordahl in Arizona, Bahia Amali in Texas, along with several other plaintiffs in Texas, um, Alan Leveritz in Arkansas, a news publisher, um, and uh, Abby Martin in Georgia, as well as a Engineering, which is an engineering company out of the state of Texas, Um, Each of the plaintiffs, with the exception of Alan Leverett, which I'll come back to, each of the plaintiffs have won their cases. Federal judges in every single one of these cases have said and ruled that these laws are unconstitutional. Now, what has happened in those cases, which is really important, is that instead of dealing with the matters of constitutionality that are being addressed by federal judges, state legislatures are going back legislators are going back to the legislative floor to amend these bills, and in some cases, in the case of Bahia Amali in Texas, as well as Mick Jordal in Arizona, in places like Georgia, where Abby Martin also won her case what these legislators are doing, they're actually raising the threshold of these bills. So instead of letting it apply to individual public contractors like Bahia and Mick and Abby, they're raising the threshold so that it only applies to public contractors with 5 to 10 or more employees and more than a $100,000 in contracts. In other words, um, they're rendering these individual cases moot so that they do not move through the appellate level courts and rise um, across the country. Now, Alan Lovret is the one scenario where we have seen a loss. Um, So Alan Leverett, a little bit about him, he is uh, the news publisher for the Arkansas Times. It's an independent um, media outlet, one of the few progressive media outlets that are standing in the state of Arkansas today. Um, He um, has not been following and had not been following um, the boycott divestment sanctions movement. And he really follows what's happening in the state of Arkansas. So when he receives a pledge as the publisher of an independent media outlet that he must sign um, in order to receive advertising dollars from the university that bought ad space, the local university that bought ad space in his paper, he's bewildered. And he says, look, as a journalist, I'm not going to be signing my ple- this pledge, which is forcing me to take a political position on something that has nothing to do with Arkansas. Um, And so he challenges the law in Arkansas. He loses at the federal district level. Um, He appeals um, at the Eighth Circuit Appellate Court. Um, He wins narrowly there in a two to one um, panel of of judges. Um, And in a rare move, the state of Arkansas went back to the Eighth Circuit Court and requested what they call an en banc hearing, which may be very familiar to, to all of you. It is a request. For the case to be reheard by all of the justices of the court, in this case, 12 justices. Um, and the Eighth Circuit, in a rare move, ends up granting um, them that. Um, so that case was heard. The Eighth Circuit on um, Bonk hearing results in um, uh, siding with and upholding the, the lower court's desi- original decision. Um, And so the ACLU, in October of 2022, ended up appealing to the Supreme Court and filing a petition to hear the case of Alan Leverett in the defense um, of the right to boycott. Um, Importantly, I want to say that um, the right to boycott in case um, just as a, you know, kind of a a data point that may be helpful has been enshrined by the Supreme Court historically. Um, In 1982, in a landmark civil rights era case um, called NAACP versus Claiborne County, County, um, the, the Supreme Court ends up Um, enshrining boycott as one of the most important pillars of First Amendment rights in this country. Um, And that story is a really important one, right? So for for those who are are big history buffs, and also for those of you who are interested in how movements have shaped um, our country's politics, um, you may know that this case emerges out of Claiborne County, Mississippi, after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. when um, black communities in Claiborne County um, decide to boycott white merchants for unequal hiring practices. Um, And at the time, the white merchants filed um, against the NAACP which was the main organizing body behind those boycotts um, that these were discriminatory boycotts. Um, Sadly, in 1969, the courts agreed with the white merchants. It takes 11 years Uh, 13 years, 1982, for the Supreme Court to reverse and to say, actually, we got it wrong back then. Um, Now, Coming back to modern day, you know, the ACLU ends up petitioning the Supreme Court in October 2022 to say, we would like you to reaffirm the right to boycott, to reaffirm the decision made in in 1982, and to rehear the case of Alan Leverett. Um, We just heard a couple of weeks ago that SCOTUS has decided that they will not be hearing the case. Um, What's important to note there is that um, that decision not to hear the case is not a ruling on the merits of the case um and what that means is that this continues to play out um at the lower courts um you may be asking them why did scotus um decide not to hear the case um juries out there's scotus actually only takes as many of you likely are very familiar a very very small percentage of cases for a whole wide um a range of reasons um and and for what that means for us is is that this will continue to play out plaintiffs and legal suits and the work of lawyers like Dylan and the courageous people who are stepping up um, will continue to be important um, as we we work to defend our rights to voice dissent in the U.S. Um, it's also um, going to be important to be paying attention to um, the bills that continue to move, which I'd like to talk about a little bit later around the template bills that Laura Friedman has been ringing an alarm around since... Um, they first these bills first started to take root, um, and that we've had the privilege to document
0: in our film boycott as well. So if if I could just jump in, I don't think we're going to have time to get into the the um, copycat bills. Um, so I, I want to sort of put a put a pin in that, and we'll we'll come back to. That. I hope our, our viewers and listeners will will keep an eye out. We, you know, Just Vision did an amazing webinar yesterday. We can put a link to that webinar in the chat where we covered this in in pretty good detail. We can throw some other links into the chat about it, but I think we're not going to have time to to get to that today. I'm so sorry, um, Khaled, I think you're going to go on with the next question.
1: Yeah, I think um, uh, I, I, Dylan, I'd, I'd like to come back to you, and since we are kind of running short on time, I want to ask um, uh, you and and Yusuf uh, to to be as uh, as concise as you as you can. So, Dylan, I want to ask you about um, another aspect of, of Palestine Legal's work um, that we've already heard referenced here, and that and what's commonly referred to as lawfare. Um, specifically, can you talk about the case that has been filed against? Um, the U.S. campaign for Palestinian rights uh, in U.S. courts. What what's the story there? Uh, what does what does this case say about the efforts uh, of U.S. and Israeli lawfare groups to use the legal system to harass uh, and suppress free speech uh, on behalf of Palestinian rights? And and if I could, while we're at it, um, tell us a little bit about some of the legal successes that that Palestine legal or or other advocates. Uh, 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 trying to preserve uh, free speech rights have had in this uh, in this arena.
0: In, in three
1: minutes or less. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Thank you. I will I will do my best here. Um, uh, I think uh, it's a it's a great question. The issue of lawfare is um, definitely a, a, a key one that we're facing as an organization. And I want to just briefly return to a framing that Yusuf provided us um, a couple of minutes ago. Um, which pointed out that um, the the Israeli strategy basically is to cast all forms of Palestinian organizing and political expression um, as a form of uh, or an expression of terrorism. Um, I want to just name that this is a form of anti-Palestinian racism, um, that the allegation that Palestinians are are terrorists is a part um, of a racial construction of the Palestinian um, that is part of the Israeli um, effort to dehumanize um, Palestinians and justify um, their oppression. So while I totally agree that the the main strategy right now is to shift the conversation away from issues of substance, Israel does still justify um, its actions um, on the basis of national security. And and to do that um, and to justify its indiscriminate action against Palestinians, um, it labels them all as as terrorists. Um, what that looks like in the U- in the United States often does take the form of lawfare. Um, so. Uh, right now um the U.S campaign for Palestinian rights, which is a coalition um, of hundreds of smaller uh, anti-racist um you know uh, uh, activist organizer groups um is uh being sued by the Jewish National Fund um uh, under the uh, uh under uh, what, what we what we call MST laws, which are material support um, for terrorism laws, um, which uh are are statutes passed, um, in the in the wake of nine eleven, um, that are uh, uh, that that are, are pretty broad and, and, and vague and, and allow um, for you know for for targeted um, prosecutions. But, but in this instance, um, the U.S. campaign um, did basically nothing. So in in 2018 there was the Great Return March um the, the US campaign um it, you know issued some statement of solidarity um with with the marchers and and um you know and echoed the call um, for the right of return which is enshrined um in international law. Um the JNF um Sued the the campaign U.S. campaign for Palestinian rights um, under one of these MST laws um, and and made the bogus claim that um, by you know by expressing themselves in this way and offering um, you know uh, words of support um, for these protesters um, that um, that organization was uh, materially supporting terrorism. They they made in you know they they joined that allegation with with the claim that because. The US campaign is a fiscal sponsor for the for the BNC, the Bush, the Boycott National Committee, um, that that somehow uh, meant that they were, uh, you know, materially supporting um, the actions of a of a foreign terrorist organization. Um, they lost in uh, in the lower court um, and uh, the JNF appealed. Um, so there was recently an oral argument um, in which the Center for Constitutional Rights um, who's representing a U.S. campaign, um, argued in front of the appeals court um, and asked the court basically to dismiss um, this case, um, which hopefully um, they will. But the, the reason why this is important is because even where um, you know uh, 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 like our clients or, the, or, or, or activist groups even if they ultimately win in these cases the fact that they are for years caught up in expensive time-consuming litigation where they're facing these kinds of accusations um, hampers their ability um, to to organize and, and that is real the real strategy um, of, of law fairs to wrap people up um, in litigation make bogus allegations against them that they then have to clear their name, um in order to defend themselves um and prevent um and prevent their actual advocacy, solidarity, and chill expression, pro-Palestine expression. Um. So uh, I'll, you know, along along similar lines, I can I can speak about another case in the context of uh, of a Palestine legal uh, a victory and a broader movement victory, um, which is that uh, um, a a, um, yeah, a not dissimilar um, lawsuit um, had uh, been moving through the courts um, for for eight years, which was um, following the American Studies Association's um, endorsement of the of the BDS movement um, in 2013. A similar kind of lawfare. Um, um, group um, sued um, sued the American Studies Association. It was um, using some of the uh, couple of ASA members um, as as plaintiffs um, and made some bogus claim about, um, you know, the ASA not meeting its fiduciary obligations um, or or something that that claim um, was uh, was recently dismissed um, under um, under slap, which is Basically, a, a body of law um, that says that you're not allowed to bring lawsuits against against individuals just for the purpose of silencing um, their their expression. Um, so that was a that was a victory. Of course, you know it's it still you know the the the, the ASA and and um, you know and other folks still had to spend years dealing dealing with this. Um, and so you know while it is a victory, the, the issue of lawfare is is still um, a, a, a huge problem. Where we have been able um, you know to you know to um you know to secure victories is um you know on uh, in, uh, as against the the thousands of cases that we that we receive um from student activists um you know from folks um in 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 their workplaces um who are facing you know direct repression we've been able to um you know get student conduct cases dismissed um you know get people legal counsel when they've been unjustly fired um from from their jobs and and provided legal support um for folks um, you know, regular folks um, who are trying to uh, organize uh, collectively for for Palestinian liberation. Did I do it in
0: three minutes? That's great, thank you. that you. You covered a tremendous amount very clearly. Um, Yusuf, you're going to get the last word, and I want to ask you two completely unrelated questions, but they're things that I I know you've written about and can talk about. Um, first, and, and Dylan just meant the, mentioned the U.S. campaign case. And what's one of the things that's interesting is about, the, about the U.S. campaign case is it's brought by the, the Jewish National Fund, but it was actually, according to a press release on the website of an Israeli NGO that is closely tied to the Israeli government, it was actually, um, in, in many ways, um, initiated and created by this Israeli organization, which actually in its website says that it says, quote, the ILF prepared and recruited The JNF, that's the other word, prepared and recruited together with a group of terror victims and suing um, the U.S. campaign. So first of all, I want you to talk a little bit about the role of the Israeli government and Israeli officials in lawfare. I mean, this was mentioned by Suhad earlier. I mean, this is this comes up over and over. I know you've done a lot of work on this. So can you talk about that? And second, I want you to talk about the issue of double standards. And and Dylan brought up the issue of anti-Palestinian bias. I mean, we've heard about this. Defenders of Israel often complain, including on the Hill, that Israel is held unfairly to a higher standard than other countries, right? Arguing basically that other countries are doing many things that are worse and aren't getting blowback. So therefore it's anti-Israel to criticize Israel. But looking at the issues related to right to protest, and particularly legitimacy of using tools like calling for boycotts and divestment and sanctions as a means of protesting, it does seem like there is a double standard, as we've seen, especially around things like Ukraine, where these same tools are are literally celebrated, including in the halls of Congress. So can you talk about those two things, and then we'll close it out there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So in regards to the, the, the International Legal Forum, uh, and you're very right to point to that um, uh, claim on their website, um, you know, th- this is an organization, that I would say, is not merely closely tied to the Israeli government, uh, but is heavily funded by the Israeli government and specifically, um, the contracted with the Israeli Ministry of Strategic Affairs. What I think is important to keep in mind here is that at a certain point in time, um, in the last 15 years, the Israeli government adopted a very specific strategy, um, which uh, it believed was the appropriate strategy uh, to pursue when it came to dealing with global civil society dissent. Uh, and that strategy was that it, it needed to partner with like-minded pro-Israel, non-governmental associations in um, different countries uh, to build a networked approach Uh, to combating BDS and silencing those uh, who would speak out against Israeli policy. And it did this through a variety of different uh, avenues, including through the use of lawfare, which is exactly uh, what they contracted with the International Legal Forum to do, to organize a network of attorneys uh, to pursue lawfare against organizations that were critical of Israel. Um, And when you follow the activities uh of these government agencies and of these groups it's quite transparent what um what is happening here uh, and that there is essentially a government-backed effort to silence and attack and coerce dissenters beyond their borders uh with the help of local organizations Um, and when we look at the uh, case mentioned in particular uh, we can see that the international legal forum uh, along with the attorneys who are representing the clients on the case uh, are all present at conferences that are pulled together by Israeli government agencies where they are boasting about the use of lawfare, the passage of anti-boycott legislation, uh, the shutting down of bank accounts, all as things that this network of organizations along with the Israeli government worked on together. Um, and so it's important for us to understand exactly what this is, a government-backed effort to silence dissent beyond borders. Um, I would say in regards to your last question about, uh, about double standards, and we hear this uh, often, this accusation leveled against people who support um, the call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions. And I think it's crucial here to understand that this call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions is a Palestinian call. It comes from Palestinian civil society. It is Palestinians saying to the rest of the world, we want your solidarity, and this is what solidarity looks like to us, right? Um, And Palestinians cannot single out Israel because Israel is the single country occupying Palestinian territory and denying Palestinian rights in this context. So you can't single out the only country doing this. Um, and when people are responding to the Palestinian call for solidarity, just as the United States is responding to the call for Ukraine for support, when there are violations of Ukrainian sovereignty and violations of international law by others, it's important that um, we we hold a single standard here. Uh, and clearly there is a double standard and it's with the treatment of Palestinians and not not with the treatment of Israel.
1: Thanks, Yusuf. And uh, thank you all. Uh, On behalf of the Foundation for Middle East Peace and the Middle East Institute, I want to thank our uh, really excellent panelists who had Dylan and Yusuf for a a really uh, superb discussion. And thanks to all of you for, for joining and we'll see you next week.